Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Have you ever seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail? I think I've only seen it about infinity times. I guess this will be a little bit of a spoiler alert, although if you haven't seen it in like the 47 years, eh, it's kind of more your fault at this point. There's a part toward the end where each knight needs to answer three questions of the Keeper of the Bridge of Death in order to cross. Brave Sir Lancelot steps up first, as he is the brave one, and gets three of the easiest questions ever, and across the bridge he goes. So, Sir Robin, the not-so-brave as Sir Lancelot, emboldened by Lancelot's experience, exclaims, That's easy! and jumps at the chance of being next. I'll let you take it from here. Suffice to say, it wasn't quite as easy as it seemed. On today's episode, we're going to talk about how easy it is to solve the real problems in the world. First, we're going to see just how easy it is to solve the gas crisis. Then we'll easily sacrifice women for equality. And finally, we're going to end hate. Real quick and easy-like. So, grab your gas cans. Don't you dare tell a woman what to do. And get ready to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. Not women, though. They, they can do it if they want. Because if, if it's okay with the women, here we go. Our current situation as a country seems like the stereotypical corporate boss. A portly, slightly balding man standing at the end of a large, long conference table. With a lobster red face, veins standing out on the forehead, fist pounding on the table, yelling at his underlings... Stop telling me about the problems. Bring me solutions. How many of you are tired of hearing about the problems? You either want the problems to be solved or you want the ride to stop so you can get off. We've got gender issues, critical race theory, out-of-control inflation, World War III on the horizon, supply chain problems, product shortages, a pandemic created by China or not, Controversy over a totally safe and effective or not vaccine or not. Murder hornets, gas prices shooting to the moon, abortion laws, a president who can't string a coherent sentence together, a vice president who cackles at everything because that's literally all she's got, and a third in command, Nancy Pelosi, who likely understands whatever it is that Biden is mumbling about. And we've got global climate change or not. So many problems, no solutions. Well, breathe a sigh of relief. Help is on the way. From IEA.org, headline, Emergency measures can quickly cut global oil demand by 2.7 million barrels a day, reducing the risk of a damaging supply crunch. Well, it's about time. So the International Energy Agency begins their common-sense solutions by recognizing that prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, everything was awesome, Yeah, but now, well, we're in a lot of trouble. 
this organization understands that we are staring in the face of a global energy crunch that the price at the pump is unacceptable, so they've come up with a very simple 10-point plan that will maybe not solve all of the problems, but definitely make things much, much better. And as we're cruising back on Easy Street, we can also stick it to Putin by cutting his oil revenue and curb that oil demand, which will move us closer to a sustainable world. As you can probably well imagine, these are fairly simple, straightforward, common-sense solutions to our current oil crisis. They even developed a simple infographic that you can download and, I don't know, I guess print it off as a poster and put it on your wall. I don't know. Let's take a look at the solutions and, and then talk about them briefly. Remember, their premise is that transportation is the largest user of oil, getting people and goods from point A to point B, so their solutions tackle that section of demand. First, reduce all speed limits on highways by at least 10 kilometers per hour, or in numbers that actually matter, about 6 miles per hour. So, <laughs> how about no? The reality of the situation is that we've put in decades of road design, material development, construction techniques, and vehicle safety to allow us to gradually increase the limits on highways. That genie is already out of the bottle. It ain't going back in. Why do I say that? Have you ever driven? Anywhere? I mean, unless a cop is sitting in the median, the speed of the road is dictated more by the motorist than it is by the sign. Now look, I have personally, <laughs> obviously never done this, but... Have you ever seen that 10 to 15 long train of cars just flying down the freeway? Have you ever driven around Chicago? Have you driven through construction zones? Speed limits are generally speed suggestions. Yeah, we generally stick to the posted limits within reason. And yes, there are some that frustratingly follow them exactly. But to think that we can just change the number on the signs and save a bunch of gas, huh, guess I'd say best of luck. But if we're doing this, why not do this smarter? All around the world, there is a fairly wide-ranging maximum speed limit on your highways. But cars are generally manufactured to obtain their best gas mileage or gas kilometerage, if you're some sort of insane person, at about 55 miles per hour. Why not just cap the speed at 55 miles per hour? Wouldn't that make more sense? And yes, it, it would. Trust me, lowering the speed by 5 to 10 miles per hour is just the first step. They're headed this direction. Second, work from home up to three days a week where possible. Well, this is one, and there are a couple that I actually agree with. Not to save gas, but to save a lot of things, specifically time. I worked from home for about one and a half years with the pandemic. I wasn't worried about a virus. I didn't request to work from home. I was just part of the group of non-essential employees, that always makes you feel good, that was told to work from home as much as possible. And since the majority of my work is of the infattening office kind, I worked from home nearly the entire one and a half years. If you've never had the opportunity... I can't express strongly enough the gloriousness of not having to get up, get ready, fight traffic, so I could sit in an office over there versus sitting in my office over here and then fight the traffic again to get home and once home, as I cross the threshold, struggle to de-pants myself so I can return to my life of comfort. 
Now, with a slight shifting of roles, I actually do need to go in nearly every day, and I accept that. But a large number of pasty white, well, or I guess for equality, pasty black, dimly lit office dwellers, they don't need to go into the office. Stay home. Save the stress. Save your gas. Save your money. Third point, car-free Sundays in large cities. Huh. Oh, that's easy. Uh, I guess maybe if you attempt to use your car in a large city on a Sunday, you're what, shot on sight? Maybe Saturday night is spent with city workers lining the roads with all sorts of IUDs to take out anyone that attempts to drive. Okay, yes, I know it's IED. I just thought it'd be funny for you to picture a bunch of intrauterine devices lining the streets. So, question, churches out then? That's that's not a thing we're going to go do? Or, or, or do we just have to ride our electronic skateboards and electronic bikes and whatnot there? What about people that are going out of town for the weekend, typically returning on Sundays, you know, to be able to go to work on Monday? Is that not allowed anymore? Say you want to take your boat to the lake on Sunday. That's a, that's a, that's a no? Or can you apply for an exemption? Or, or let's apply. More accurately, purchase a one-time pass to uh, offset your selfish desire to use fuel. Yeah, I, I, I think looking at this one, I'd have to say that's a hard pass on this one. Fourth point, make public transport cheaper and incentivize micro-mobility like electric bikes, scooters, skateboards, and walking and cycling. Okay, sounds great. Uh, two general questions for clarification, if you don't mind. If the cost of public transport is being lowered, who's picking up that cost? I mean, nothing is free. Somebody somewhere is paying for this, so... Maybe I don't spend as much on gas personally, but now my taxes go up. But being good socialists, we're we're willing to do what we're told for the you know for the common good. Now my second question is: Has anyone that made this easy ten-point plan ever been to most of the United States? I mean, in general, public transport or micro mobility or walking or cycling. It just isn't a viable option. In fact, in most of the U.S., an entire infrastructure for public transport would have to be created, and it would be a disaster. Fifth, alternate private car use in large cities. <laughs> Again, what happens if you need your car and it's not your day? Skip back a tick to car-free Sundays to get my questions and feelings about this idea. It, it's Look, it's my car. I paid for it. It's my gas. I paid for it. It's my insurance. I paid for it. And the roads, those are my roads as I'm a taxpayer. I paid for them. I'll drive on the road when I like, not based on some alternating schedule. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sixth, urge car sharing and practices that decrease fuel use. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. I guarantee that I'm treating the other guy's car like a rental, and he's going to do that to mine. I, I don't think I'll be sharing my car with anybody. If you want to carpool, fine. We can talk about that. But I shan't be sharing my car. Seventh, promote efficient use of freight trucks and goods delivery. So, this involves ensuring maintenance is done on the trucks to make sure they're running correctly, correct tire pressure, things like that. I totally agree. That should be done for a variety of reasons. 
But this point also incorporates as a requirement for getting your license, training and testing in eco-driving practices. Yeah, no. And third, in order to not have empty vehicles or partial loads, cooperate with other companies to share trucks and truck space. Yeah, again, you know, look, if they want to do this, fine. But this shouldn't be coming from a government mandating that they do this. We don't need socialist philosophy to govern our private practices and companies. Eighth, prefer high speed and night trains to planes where possible. Again, I'd have to ask, have they ever seen the United States? We have no high speed rail. We have Amtrak. And those seem to have a nasty habit of wanting to leave their prescribed route and try blazing some trail into the uncharted night. And even if we did do this, no way am I sleeping on a train for eight hours where I could fly in two or three and sleep in a nice hotel bed. Ninth, avoid business travel when alternatives exist. <laughs> yes! Completely agree with this. There's no reason to fly or drive somewhere when a basic web-based meeting would suffice. And I think we should make this mandatory for our politicians as well. Force them to stay in an office in their hometown, in their home state, and attend these votes, debates, whatever they're doing or not doing there. Have them do it virtually. And 10th, hasten adoption of electric and more efficient vehicles. Now, for more on this, check out some of my past podcasts. I've covered the ridiculousness of this from an electrical grid standpoint, a time standpoint, a cost standpoint. Look, electric vehicles are fine, but as of right now, the battery technology isn't there yet. And not only that, but the purchase cost is outrageous and the repair costs are even more unbelievable. And then of course, you know, the electrical generation capacity and our current power grid, they aren't even close to being able to handle a large influx of electric cars. But if we just do these 10 simple things over the next four months, we will then start to save 2.7 million barrels of oil per day, globally. Now, if everyone across the globe does this, that, that's the kicker. Everyone's got to be on board. And what does this do for us? Well, according to worldometers.info, we have only just over 1.444 trillion barrels of oil left in the entire world. Never mind the fact that there are stories every decade about, you know, the largest oil deposit ever was just discovered. Now, according to their numbers, we use, again, globally, 97 million barrels of oil per day. At that consumption rate, we'll apparently be out of oil completely in 47 years. But if we cut 2.7 million barrels per day, or 2.8% of our current usage, that would lengthen our years until the tank is empty to 48.3 years. So uh, so 1.3 more, more years. Uh, so you can see that by doing all of these things, if done over the next four months, over the entire globe, it would basically do nothing. And, and let's, let's be really honest here. The cost to implement all of these things globally would be astronomical trillions of dollars to put in all of the infrastructure needed to support most of these easy steps. Look, 
This, again, is nothing but abject silliness masquerading as science. Each of these points has an oil savings tied to it, but it clearly excludes the massive influx of money, time, and energy to make most of these happen. But this is what you get when you live in a world where you believe that you are the wise, wise man, that nothing is higher than you. This simmering panic is simply a result of an atheistic worldview. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, does this mean that we just sit back, you know, let go and let God, as it were? No, we're also told in the Bible that if we don't work, we don't eat. We're told that if we don't provide for our families, we're worse than an unbeliever. We see where Jesus excoriates the Pharisees for creating a loophole in the law that if they give their money to God, they don't have to take care of their parents with that money. (laughs) Sorry, out of luck. We're supposed to work, provide, buy, sell, save, plan, etc. But what we're not supposed to do is worry about these things. When we move from planning to worrying, we've thrown up an idol or two or more between us and God. With regard to oil... Will we run out in 47 years? I don't know, maybe. But scientists have been telling us for 75 years that we're just about to run out of oil. Somehow we seem to survive. Working on the best way to use the oil deposits we have efficiently and effectively while researching and engineering viable alternatives is a great thing to do. As much as I hope I'm dead by this time, I do believe that eventually all vehicles will be electric. But this requires a lot of technology some of which probably hasn't been invented yet. So we should plan and study and invent and design, but we should not worry. We shouldn't be anxious. When you find an article like this that clearly has tunnel vision, removing all other factors, removing logic, and assuming massive changes can be made overnight in order to alleviate sudden doom, realize that they're worshiping idols. Like the Bible says, resting in Christ brings peace. We can have peace even in a tumultuous world, even with calamity and chaos, even with in-your-face fear-mongering, fear-mongers mongering fear at you. If you have that peace, take a second and give thanks to God for that. If you don't have that peace, pick any of the four Gospels, read it, then find a solid pastor and talk to him about what to do to find eternal, lasting peace even inside of a temporarily chaotic world. Well, I'm offended. 
I've said many times that it takes a lot to offend me, but here we are. I don't know, I hesitate to even comment on this as I'm not really entirely sure if all of you will be able to handle this, but I guess I'm willing to risk your mental health. Sacrifices I make. From LiveScience.com, headline, well, listen, first, sit down for this. If you're driving, you might want to pull over to the side. Headline, why does NASA let male astronauts stay in space longer than females? (laughs) There it is. I I can count at least five ways that I'm offended by this headline. I mean, again, why does NASA let male astronauts stay in space longer than females? Well, first of all, male, uh, female, (laughs) Uh, why are we using such archaic language? Those terms literally mean nothing. And and second, only two genders? What about the other 80-plus genders out there? How, how long can they stay in space? And third, who does NASA think it is <laughs> letting females stay in space? They're not the boss of females. Fourth, why are men able to stay in space longer than females? I think that's a solid question. Fifth, And finally, can we check our male chauvinism at the door, please? Why are males mentioned first in the headline? I think a much better headline would be, Why would NASA think they have the right to limit the amount of time spent in space by people who bleed or people who identify as people who bleed differently than people who don't bleed or identify as people who don't bleed, as if we didn't already know it's because of the white patriarchal, oppressive NASA culture, which should be canceled. There. I think that's better. I'm somewhat less offended by that. I mean, until I read the article. Here's the gist of the article. The article of hate. When astronauts go into space, they are hit by higher levels of ionizing radiation than the rest of us Earth dwellers because we have the atmosphere they don't. Now, they don't get hit with the full brunt of radiation emitted by the sun and exploding stars because they still have protection by the magnetosphere. (laughs) I know, I'm talking down to you. Bear with me here. Just not protected by the atmosphere. This is most often experienced through extended stays in space, such as on the International Space Station. Now, Based on limits set back in 1989, NASA has historically limited the maximum lifetime exposure of people based on their uh, gender and their age. Oh, good. They're ageists, too. That's just wonderful. Okay, here's a crash course on radiation exposure. Hang with me. This will only hurt a little bit. The general measurement you may have heard of before when it comes to radiation is the REM. The measurement used in this study is the millisievert, which is about 100 millirems to 1 millisievert. This is not overly important. Just wanted you to know where this sievert name comes from. The general human will receive about 3.6 millisieverts, see there it is, of radiation per year. Now, that's a fairly harmless dose, but we do see the effects. Wrinkles, sunspots, skin cancers, just the general aging that our skin experiences. Now, because astronauts are not protected by the atmosphere, they are exposed to more. For instance, an eight-day space shuttle trip clocked in at 5.6 millisieverts, or about one and a half years worth of dosage. 
A six-month stay in the International Space Station wins you about 160 millisieverts, or about 44 and a half years worth of dosage. And then they estimate that a trip to Mars would net you about 1,200 millisieverts, or about 333 and a third years worth of dosage. Now, because the added dosage of radiation increases the potential for cancer, NASA and most, if not all, space agencies around the world have set a limit for what their astronauts can receive in a career. This limit is based on two factors, age at the start of your career and gender. Well, just the two genders, not all genders, because NASA ain't woke, hashtag. The age limit works in a way that if you're younger when you start your career, you're allowed a smaller amount of exposure because you have more years of life for that exposure to manifest into something bad. If you're older when you start your career, you're allowed more because you have fewer years left for it to do something bad. The gender limit is set so that women are allowed less than men. Now, it's difficult to pin down the exact limits for each. I've seen some conflicting numbers, but I think in general, what I've found is that you have a sliding scale where, for example, a 30-year-old woman would be allowed 180 millisieverts over her career, while a 60-year-old man would be allowed 700 millisieverts. The difference between men and women is based on a study that showed that when men and women were exposed to the same levels of radiation in a similar amount of time, women were more than twice the risk of men at developing lung cancer. The bulk of these studies were done based on the atomic bomb survivors in Japan, which showed that women were more susceptible to ionizing radiation than men. So NASA had a specific reason why they set different limits. And that brings us current to today, or, or more accurately, at least the last few years. In 2018, Peggy Whitson, the former chief of NASA's astronaut corps, was forced to retire when she hit her exposure limit at the age of 57. This did not make Peggy happy, so Peggy had to make sure everyone knew it. And the article implies she's not the only one. So, in the name of fairness and equality and breakage of the uranium ceiling, NASA asked a panel of experts in 2021, brought together by the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, to analyze their new plan of just making the career limit 600 millisieverts across the board. All ages, for all, well, both, both all genders. NASA did some calculations based on young women, which are the most susceptible, plugging in numbers in some cancer risk model that they have, and they came up with 600 millisieverts. This across-the-board number would reduce the allowable exposure for veteran men, but would dramatically increase the limit for younger women. So that's the idea. Now let's talk about what's really going on here. This has very little to do with data. If you DuckDuckGo, because we're Christians and we don't use Google, unless we need to, if you DuckDuckGo, NASA, and radiation limits, you'll find article after article where they talk about how NASA should change the limits for equality. For equality. This is such a crock. Let's really break this down. In order to uh, equalifies everything, because remember, there is no difference between a man and a woman. It's all in your head. We're actually cutting the effective risk for the 60-year-old man of developing cancer by 15% but we're increasing the risk of the 30-year-old woman by 333% of 
who are we actually helping here? Now, the woke mob would say her body, her choice, and I actually agree in this case. If the woman wants to lay on the sun, go for it. It's her call. But let's not drag false doctored data into the conversation and pretend like we're doing something noble. It would be better to just say, well, we'll let them to decide. Or we can let them decide and even adjust insurance costs based on their exposure. That would be fine. But to fudge data, which, oh man, I guarantee it is. There's no question in my mind that this is doctored up to the point that they can justify their results. Remember, I've said for a long time, give me a set of data. I can give you 10 different conclusions that will all be correct and they will all contradict each other. It's just not that hard to make data say what you want it to say. It's actually harder to make data say what data actually says. I further guarantee that it may not be as high tech, but the data that was done on atomic bomb survivors is likely just straight data and results. But at least equality, right? We, we need to have that because, you know, man equals woman equals man equals woman equals whatever you want, to be honest. So how does the Christian look at this? Well, to begin with, man and woman are created different. In the eyes of God, the saved man and woman are the same as children of God, but we know that men and women are different. Man was created first. Woman was created out of man. Man was given the rules and the responsibilities. Woman was to be submissive to the man. Men were designed with greater muscle mass, greater lung capacity, greater adrenaline, greater testosterone, to hunt, to build, to farm, to protect. The woman was designed to be softer, more emotional, caring, giving birth, which I'm thankful thankful for that, uh, raise children, care for the home, and on and on. Now, I know that today those roles aren't pure anymore, but look through the Bible. I think you'll find I'm generally correct. And there is no question, based on real biological science, that men and women act and react to inputs differently. I have no idea why, nor do I care, but I have no doubt that women are more susceptible to radiation based on non-woke-influenced data. But here's the thing that really, I mean, really annoys me. Men are supposed to be the protectors of women. Regardless of a woman's desire to absorb as much radiation as a man, you know, so they can be equal in astronauting hours, what real men should do is say, no. Look, I get it. I understand the drive for equality. But the data says that it could kill you. So no, a real man is not interested in sacrificing a woman so she can temporarily feel good. This is why God put man in charge. This is why man is built more logical so as to be able to temper the emotions that make us do foolish things. And mark my words, making these exposure limit changes is an emotional and will be found out to be a foolish thing. It's it's just so sad to see men not be men and women not be women and men folding under the pressure of women and women trying to be and demanding to be men. We see this all over. Effeminate submissive husbands with masculine dominant wives. Divorces over the battle of who is actually the head of the home. Women either not marrying or marrying later or choosing not to have children or not until later because they feel they need to climb the corporate ladder first. Men pushing to have women serve in combat roles. 
Men being stay-at-home daddies while mom goes out to make the money. Men dressing up as women. Women dressing up as men. Men desiring men. Women desiring women. Operations, hormone therapies, mothers pushing children to be anything but who they were born as. And yes, this is primarily the mother that does this. And the list goes on. Think about if we would just follow God's plan. Unfortunately, that will never be. This is a curse of sin, and the curse is growing. So, what do we do? Well, parents, teach your children God's design. Women, back off and let the husband lead. We're not perfect. We'll make mistakes. Let us try and learn and grow. And men, for the love of all that's holy, be men. Fight for your family. Love them, teach them, train them, lead them. Do your best to be Christ's representative on earth to them. Be an example. Don't be afraid to be wrong. Don't be afraid to apologize. Bring the love, the protection, the strength that God intended into everything that you do. Have you ever seen one of those portraits where the eyes seem to follow you wherever you go? It's super creepy, right? <clears throat> now, the first thing you should probably do is go up and give it a quick three stooges kind of poke in the eyes just to be sure, because who knows? Look... I've seen way too many Scooby-Doo's to assume it's just a painting. After that, get out of there. The last thing you need is for some inanimate, artistic expression created for a specific purpose to mock you like that. You're way too emotionally fragile to, to handle that kind of trauma. I mean, you can't be expected to work to understand the intent of the artist, as if that even matters. This is not about the creator... The creation, the history, the meaning, the lessons, the discussion. This is about you. How does it make you feel? That's what's of the utmost importance here. From CNN via MSN, headline, Maryland removes its last courthouse Confederate statue. Well, it's about ding-dang time, right? That's all I've got to say. Okay, well, maybe I'll say a little bit more. Let me try to sum this up, see where we go from there. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center literally one of the most liberal, racist organizations out there, in the years 2015 to 2019, only 58 monuments of hate and racism were removed. After St. George Floyd was intentionally targeted and premeditatively murdered by police in 2020, we were able to rid ourselves of another 160 symbols of Confederate racism and hatred, out of which 94 were monuments. The pace, sadly, and and may I add, disgustingly and racistly slowed in 2021, only canceling and shaming just over 70 monuments for their active participation in racial hatred and probably white supremacy and, and whatnot. So in 2021, the NAACP decided that the Talbot Boys Confederate statue standing outside of the Talbot County Courthouse for the last 100 plus years had to go as well. As always, they respectfully submitted a request for review, asking very nicely if the county could... <laughs> oh, just kidding. No, they sued, because that's what the NAACP does. They, they just kind of sue everybody. And why must this centenarian statue go? Well, clearly, because it is, quote, racially discriminatory and unlawful, as well as, quote, an unavoidable, painful reminder every time they enter and leave the courthouse during a trial, hearing, or public meeting of the hateful legacy of slavery and those who fought to preserve it, end quote. 
To which I would just like to add, duh. The Talbot County Council then voted 3-2 to two to allow themselves to be bullied by an organization that simply looks at everything through a racial lens. But they're a black organization, so it's impossible for them to be racist, even though nearly everything they do is based on the amount of melanin one possesses. I think the rule is that if you just say, not racist, after everything you do or say or publish, then they can't be accused of race baitery. Anyway... One of the council members who voted for the elimination of hate said that he understands this, quote, to be the last such monument, I'm assuming the accent and inflection here, the last such monument in the state on public property outside of a battlefield or cemetery. So this 13-foot-tall statue of a boy holding a Confederate flag, you know, like racists do, has finally come down. And based on a recent poll that I made up right now, race relations are the best they've ever been. A nearly immediate increase of X percent. And I think we can all agree that the world feels a, a little lighter and the sun looks a little brighter and my pants are fitting a little tighter. Most of these because of the statue, or more accurately, the, the hate you coming down. The statue removal was paid for by the Move the Monument Coalition, a nonpartisan organization. <laughs> yeah, that's the claim. Well, anyway, they raised $82,000 needed to cast this statue to the very pits of hell itself. Well, not exactly. It'll actually be placed in the Cross Keys Battlefield in Harrisonburg, Virginia, by the nonprofit Shenandoah Valley Battlefields Foundation the CEO of which stated, we believe that historic monuments should remain located where they were originally placed. <laughs> okay, racist boomer. Uh, however, if Civil War monuments that have relevance to the Shenandoah Valley are removed from their original locations, we are open to the appropriate relocation of such monuments to our National Historic District. The same council member as before was quoted as saying, and I and I'm not going to do the voice this time, just trust me, it's the same guy. Quote, in the end, I was persuaded that the harm done in allowing the statue to remain in place was too great and outweighed its interpretive potential in that location. Huh. Amen, brother. Amen. Just one question. What the heck is interpretive potential? And who fed you that line? And that's that. Marilyn is clean and clear of racism, now that those statues are gone, and the dream of MLK Jr. can finally be realized. No, 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 not the dream. Uh, the less often spoken about dream, in fact, it was one of those flash dream things where you're just falling asleep, and they usually end with you falling off your bike. That's where he probably dreamt that all of the meanie bobini statues that make people feel bad for their supremacist statueness would be taken away and hidden so people can stop living in, in fear. You know, that dream. So although I could go into the history of the statue, determining if the statue is good or evil isn't the point of this review. In short, the statue was put up to honor 85 men from that region that fought for the Confederacy in the Civil War. It was put up about 50 years after the Civil War ended and right in the middle of the Jim Crow era. And despite what the media would have you believe, most people in that county prior to 2015 had no idea or simply didn't care what the statue was. But in 2015, the NAACP was called into action by a few concerned citizens. 
And of course, as they do, they made a huge stink about it and told everyone not considered white how oppressed that statue made them. And now here we are. So the Move the Monument Coalition is exactly what you'd expect. A bunch of activists, heavily white, because they can never seem to get enough offended black people to march with them. Uh, all wearing bright yellow shirts with various crapulence on it. Uh, very professional picket signs, large signs, various badges. I mean, they may have asked for donations to remove the statue, but the rallies and protests that they've held, from the pictures at least, look very, very well funded. It brings up the question of what could they have done with that money? I know there are at least 11 food banks or food pantries or assistance centers in Talbot County. I'm sure they wouldn't have minded an even cut of the $82,000. Who knows how much was spent on shirt signs and bussing in the professional protesters. That's just one idea, but, but no, we, we need to remove the statue. The only positive thing I can say about this entire ordeal is that they didn't just melt it down. They actually had, as part of the 82,000, money to not only transport it to the battlefield site, but also to prepare the ground for where it would now reside. As for the Shenandoah Valley Battlefields Foundation, they claim to be historians that just want to preserve the battlefields in the region where so many fought and died, and I say good on them for that. But what I wanted to touch on briefly is this simple question. What's the point? I mean, I know the stated point. Generally, to remove symbols of racism, hatred, supremacy, discrimination, slavery, oppression, evil, division, segregation, and a partridge in a pear tree. But seriously, do we think that removing a statue will do this? Removing all statues will do this? Let me ask you a little more pointed question. Has it done it so far? With all these symbols of hatred removed, flags changed, people being shamed, language canceled, etc., etc., have we seen a steady increase in race relations? According to Gallup, historically, it's not looking good. In 2001, 70% of black adults felt that race relations were either very or somewhat good. Those are the days. Those never come back again. 62% of white adults felt the same. The perception of black adults has generally gone down ever since, with an increase from 55% in 2007 to 61% in 2008, kind of sliding into those Obama years. And after Obama's first term, blacks were at 66% and then fell off a cliff hitting about 45% by the end of Obama's presidency, and down and down through the Trump years, and down to 33%, either very or somewhat good, by 2021. But don't worry, whites felt pretty much the same. They've generally been more optimistic, starting the Obama years at 70%, up to 72 after the first term, then cratered, then rebounded somewhat, and have been on a gentle slide, coming in in 2021 at about 43%. But remember, we've removed so many symbols of hate. Why hasn't this gotten better? Why have the riots raged on? Why has Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, and anti-racism stormed on the scene claiming to have the answer? Nothing seems to be helping. And why is that? Now, at this point, I think we can agree that the divisiveness is not helping. In fact, I'd argue that what we're doing by removing everything 
and relegating the little offenders to a battlefield or a museum or a back room somewhere or a recycler is actually having the opposite effect. I want to be careful about claiming that correlation implies causation, but it sure does appear that the overall tack we're taking is leading us away from our intended port of call. The appearance and overall feeling is that if we continue on the same course, it will wind up with one skin color enslaving another skin color all over again. And I say it that way, skin color, because to be honest, I don't know which way it'll go. Remember, Asians, Latinos, and to a small degree, Native Americans are also in the mix. It's not just a matter of only black and white. There's hatred across the board at this point. I don't think we're on the doorstep of slavery. But as I've always said, if you play out to the absurd end, the direction that you're currently going, and it leads nowhere good, <laughs> turn around. I even sometimes take my own advice on that. But why do I say I think it'll get worse? That it'll wind up with a repeat of slavery based on a skin color or, or some other type of distinction between people groups? Well, I think we've all heard the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Of course, that's loosely based off of another well-known saying, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Now, this saying is often attributed to Winston Churchill, although it doesn't seem to be as definite that that's where it came from as we may be led to believe. And it appears that the original version of this quote is attributed to George Santayana. George, or as I and his other close friends call him, Jorge Augustin Nicolas Ruiz de Santiana y Boras, was Spanish by birth in 1863, but raised and educated in the U.S. and ended up being a philosopher, essayist, poet, and novelist. His original writing said this, quote, Progress, far from consisting in change, depends on retentiveness. When change is absolute, there remains no being to improve and no direction is set for possible improvement. And when experience is not retained, as among savages, infancy is perpetual. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And as wise a saying as this is, he was still not the first to make this observation. Quote, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new! It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Who said this? King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. This is taken from Ecclesiastes 1, you know, in the Bible. As you can see, not even the commonly known saying is new. The definition of insanity is a solid saying, but it's not original. Churchill might have said it, but he wasn't the first. Santayana is credited as being the original author of the saying, but he wasn't the first. Solomon said it somewhere around 935 BC, that's the general date of the book, but are we to believe that in the 3,000 years plus that preceded him, some other wise individual didn't say, yep, I've seen that before. In fact, are we to think that Adam himself didn't warn one of his sons to not try that again, remember the last time? And then sometime shortly after followed up with, if you don't learn from your past mistakes, you're gonna just 
keep doing the same thing and getting the same thing. Solomon, 3,000 years ago, knew that, yeah, there are things that are invented in every generation that are new. But the ideas, the philosophies, the actions, the mistakes, probably since, what, the first 100 years after the fall, haven't consisted of anything that we could consider new. But look at us go, again. By hiding the past, what will we accomplish? Slavery didn't start with the American colonies. Slavery didn't start with generally white Europeans owning black Africans. Slavery has come and gone dozens, hundreds of times over multiple millennia. In fact, we've got a larger slavery problem today than at any time during the American period leading to the Civil War. The amount of human trafficking and child sex slavery going on in this world right now is mind-boggling. Do we care? Some people do. Right here, I'll, I'll plug another fantastic organization that I've supported for many years, Operation Underground Railroad, or OUR. And link is in the notes if you're curious. Obviously, this podcast is in no position right now to have sponsors yet, but this is just a group I believe in. They're literally freeing slaves. So as we remove the history of slavery from textbooks, as we remove paintings, books, statues, and other symbols of a past evil era, as we push and promote through the rewriting of history the unconscious bias training at school at work, as we shame our white pastors into accepting the narrative that they are bad because of their skin color and get them to preach it from the pulpits, as we lie to our white females telling them that in order to make up for the wrongs of the past, they must literally be on their hands and knees licking the boots of black thugs, look it up, and as we decide that one people group is oppressed because their skin color is generally the shade of actual past slaves, and another people group is forever evil because their skin color is generally the shade of actual past slave owners, and all this despite the fact that neither of them were directly involved with slavery, and regardless of if either of them had any relations that were involved in slavery, we are quite literally only a few generations away from the enslaving of whoever is the weaker by whoever comes out as the stronger. And the painful lessons start again. All the programs, the money, the canceling, the rewriting, the vitriol, the hatred, the race baiting, the animosity will do nothing if the lessons aren't learned and the heart isn't converted. And not just a human change of heart, that's short-lived. The only way to find true freedom, the only way to love your fellow man, and the only way to stop the cycle is to turn to the one man who actually offers freedom, love, wisdom, and truth. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What an unbelievable, radical statement Paul made in his letter to the church at Galatia. Only in the salvation that Christ offers us through his own shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins is there true freedom. Is there true brotherhood and love for one another? The gift of salvation and offer of true freedom to a world full of the most callous, hateful, wretched sinners is no less radical today than it was when Christ first appeared on the scene 2,000 years ago. I mentioned a much bigger slavery problem that we are currently experiencing, and we are, but there's an even bigger slavery problem, one that has bound, abused, and murdered billions upon billions of people. 
the slave master is sin. Jesus said in John 8.34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. If you're unsaved, you are literally a slave to sin. But then Jesus goes on to say, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Through salvation, you move to a slave of Christ and on into being a brother or sister of Christ, a co-heir. You move from being an image bearer of God to being a child of God. You literally move from slavery to freedom. So the only real question is, what are you going to do with this? First, if you're saved, what are you doing with this freedom? Are you still living like a slave? Are you treating fellow children of God as if they aren't, for whatever reason? If so, knock it off. You exist in a different kingdom now. The shackles have been taken from you. Stop trying to put them back on. Stop trying to force them on others. Time to do what you're called to do. Love God with everything you are. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ and love your neighbor as yourself. Tell them about how to be freed from the bondage that they're currently constrained by. If you're not saved, are you going to continue ignoring this? Floundering around in a world that's descending into chaos? (laughs) Again? A world with no direction, no rudder, no truth, no hope, no eyes to see what they're doing, no mind to understand the cycle humanity is in, just a constant game of hating and being hated. Put simply, are you going to continue to live as a slave? Or are you going to accept the free gift of salvation, freedom? Forgiveness, love, hope. Will you repent of the sinfulness of your own life? The lies, the stealing, the hate, the lust, the dishonoring of your parents, the dishonoring of God? And will you finally admit what you already know to be true? That Jesus is the Son of God. That the account of his life as found in the Bible is true. And that he's the only way to be truly free. Stop concerning yourself with removing a statue or a flag, chasing the idea that the next one will lead to freedom And let Jesus remove the shackles that indiscriminately bind you to hell and give you the freedom found only in Him. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, Share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful. And until next time, God bless.